the throne room this morning of our living hope that Jesus resurrected from the grave bodily as he conquered death, as he conquered sin in the grave. He comes up forevermore to be honored and glorified. His name to be lifted high as both King and our attorney, our lawyer, our righteousness, the glory of God. So this morning we sing your praises. Help us, God, just to understand the lyrics of what we're singing. Death has lost its Death, that physical death, that spiritual death, that death in the wrath of God that should have been there, that separation from God, almighty life and love and hope should have been gone yet Jesus has been
Do you understand what I'm saying? We are, as a culture, we're lurching into the realm of things that are not biblical at all. And the problem with that is we're, we're bypassing all the biblical foundations that make it true across time, across person. Listen, you want to know why every life matters? Because God said they do. God says they do. As a church, you and I have to live that. We have to figure that out. We should not be having this opportunity for secular people to remind us of gospel truths with the poison in them that will eventually rob those truths of all meaning. This is a moment to get shrewd and to be learned. This is not a moment to be drowning in Netflix or social media and baloney while your children and the next generation are being set up for failure. Now, I put some things on Facebook in the last couple days of people that I believe are handling this as biblical as possible. There's very few. And I love a lot of people, and I've listened to a lot of sermons, and I've read not a lot of books, but some books from other people that right now are just really squishy. Chewing on things that are eventually going to rob them of the authority of Scripture to look at everyone and say, you matter, you matter, you matter. Your story matters, your story matters. God wants to save you, God wants to love you, God wants to make you a part of a Christian family. Not this fake, secular thing that only goes as far as you agree with me and I agree with you so we can be okay until we disagree. And then they want to shut you up, kick you out, ruin your life. God's way is better. And there are a lot of people that are refusing to say that just out loud and unashamedly. Bodie Botham is not one of those people. I'm begging you. If you have children in public school especially or they're getting ready to go to college, you need to pick this book up and you need to read it. And you need to go back and read it again and underline. And then when your children come home, you need to start talking to them about what they're learning. We've got some godly people that work in the school system. Guess what? They can't disciple your children. You have to. And God is not going to hold us guiltless for handing our babies over to the secular warlords and just let them go. He will not. So I'm begging you now, listen to me now. Open up the Word of God and hear what it has to say about who your children actually belong to or who is responsible for stewarding your children. It's not the public school system. My heart is breaking for what we're handing them. So I'm begging you to engage right now. And the first way to do that is to find people that are talking biblically about current affairs. Listen to what they have to say. And then if you don't believe it, go into the Word of God and find the reasons for yourself. Do not find a standard outside of God's Word that you're going to anchor your life to. It will eventually fall apart. I don't care if it's a theory, if it's from a genius or a PhD. You anchor your life to the Word of God and it will always be secure and steady. And you know what happens then? You get to really love people like you're supposed to. Whether they are black, or white, red-haired, gent- I mean, just name them all. You get to really love them. The world is selling a counterfeit of what God already did good and right. Things are so bad that we're chewing on it and it's going to poison us. I cannot be any more serious with you. And I'm I'm saying this right now with your kids in here so they can hold you accountable. Because when they go home and say, hey, Pastor said for you to buy a book and to read it, how many times are you going to tell them no? That's what I thought. Fault lines. Fault lines. Voting box.
going to release the children's church, and we're going to get into the sermon. Take the time to thank those that are loving on your children and caring for them um, in our church. And listen, for you parents, I appreciate so many of you have bought into what we've been trying to achieve around here, especially in the last four or five years. You're bringing your kids. They're hanging out in the sanctuary with us. Sometimes you're deviating, and that's for the most part people are buying into that concept. The hardest thing about it is it doesn't bear fruit immediately. But I promise you, if we stay the course five to ten years from now, these children that leave this, this church are going to be ready to enter into whatever church they land in and whatever town or whatever area God takes them to for the rest of their life. They will understand uh, the point of being a part of a church because you have loved them well and you have welcomed them. So I'm begging you with me. Stay the course. I know some days it's hard. It is what it is. It's just real life, okay? But I'm proud of the parents, too. I made your kids a couple promises. They, they stuck two weeks in here with us, including Easter Sunday. So we'll be doing ice cream again next week. So you all need to uh, adjust accordingly. So if you need to let them play for another 30 minutes before you take them home, that's on you. That's not on me. I'm giving you a week to prepare. But I'm sugaring them up and telling them thank you because they did awesome on Family Sunday last month and Easter Sunday this month, two in a row. It was a fantastic time to be here. And there was a lot of energy here. I missed last week. Once again, I appreciate Justin always filling in. I'm pretty sure that, that Trevor's arm, I'm hoping it's it's recovered. After standing there as I was watching during training at work, I was watching and Trevor was just standing there going to town. And I was like, wow, we're 15 minutes in and he's still doing that. Okay, I like this. This object lesson is going to pay some dividends, right? He kept going. I hope his arm is, uh, is rested up that it doesn't ruin his, uh, his time away. Um, so I'm thankful for that, Justin. Thank you. That's right, yeah. I'm not saying that in the microphone, though. I don't want anybody to be mad at it. Um, today we look at the proofs, part one. We're going to spend until Pentecost Sunday looking at the interactions between a resurrected Christ and those that he ran into. It follows along with our biography series. It just takes us from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But to be really honest with you, I don't think I was emotionally ready to start diving into the evil kings of Israel and trudging through that. I needed a little more time and some good stuff. And so that's what you and I are going to enjoy until May 23rd. Okay? So you remember the timeline, right? We've got Palm Sunday. We've got the Passion Week. We've got the Resurrection. There are 40 days of time that Jesus interacts with people as a bodily, resurrected Savior. 
It's not a ghost. It's not a premonition. It's not uh, uh, anything else. It cannot be because you and I will talk about there's too many people that saw it at different times or at the same time. You don't hallucinate together. Okay? So we're going to talk about that. We're going to go into those things. We're going to see that. And then after that, that, you get the 40 days of a resurrected Jesus. And then you get 10 days until Pentecost, the 50th day. When the Holy Spirit is sent from heaven to indwell believers. That's going to be our next month and a half. Or closer to, yeah, month and a week. That's where we're going to be. A couple weeks ago we went through Palm Sunday. If you remember, we talked about there are, there are five keys to God's presence in Scripture. You will see them. You will see at least one of them. Sometimes you will see more when you read through Scripture. What do you see in every passage? God's presence, God's promises, God's power, and His preeminence. He is over all things. I'm getting ready to finish uh, the book Esther um, by uh, Charles Swindoll. Once again, another phenomenal biography by this guy. He just, it's just amazing. God's not even mentioned in the book. But you know what the whole book is about? God's preeminence. The sovereignty of God. And how his hand is at work even when you and I maybe aren't saying the right things or we're, we're not, uh, as we would see this picture, you would think, man, that God should be mentioned here. Listen, in the book of Esther, he's not mentioned. Prayer is mentioned. Fasting is, is mentioned. The nation of Israel, the people God loves, they're mentioned. But you know what happens throughout that whole book? There's one thread. God is in charge. The hearts of kings, the hearts of queens, and the wickedness of evil men all fall under his sovereign power. And what do you and I get to do? We get to fall asleep at night knowing that that God is not only all-powerful, but he's paying attention. And here's the real kicker. He loves you. He's watching out for you in ways you would not understand. You see those things. When we look at Palm Sunday, what did we see? We see this trail points to Christ as God. I told you that week. Anybody that says Jesus wasn't God or didn't claim to be God is not reading the Scriptures properly. They're not reading it with the eye of a Jew. Jesus repeatedly says, I am God. But he does it in Jewish ways. Even the idea of being called the Son of Man, that is a picture of God. It's not a picture that Jesus has come to be the Son of Man, the best man. It's not that picture. It's an allusion to Daniel. And so when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he's looking at the crowd and saying, Who Daniel saw, I am. Because what happens to the Son of Man and Daniel? They worship him. They worship him. And so Christ goes through this, and he, in this last week, all that whole trail, that trail of triumph points to Christ being God. We talked about Monday, Thursday, right? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And I told you before, in 35 of that passage, right, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. In our modern culture, it is very easy to discredit or to hate church or to talk about Christian people like they're all one segment of this. They're hypocrites, they're this, or they're that. Jesus would look at that person and say, you can't love me without loving the church. And the church is you and me. You can't do it. So as we live in a culture where, where the church is dismissed constantly, you and I have to come back to the idea of 
how Jesus says people will recognize us. They will recognize you and I by our radical love for one another. What binds us together is that spirit that draws us into this fellowship where Christ is king, but the visual peace that they can see even in a fallen nature is me and you loving each other really well. Making it look heavenlier out of this world. That's the point Jesus is making. It's not the Jesus fish or the cross around your neck. It's not even how many times you mention its name. It's how you love his people. How you love his bride. It, it gets no simpler than that. So if you're sitting throughout the week, if you're watching from home, if this is the first time you've ever watched and you think, man, I really love the Lord, but those Christians, boy, I could really do without them. That's not how this works. And I've used the analogy before, that you can't love me and not love my wife. Right? You can't love her and not love me. This attachment is one flesh. I may not be perfect, and, and it might you might not want to hang out with us as much because I'm in the picture. Right? Which is totally understandable. Man, Allison, I really do love her. Her husband, I hate him. Does that make sense? It makes no sense. Yeah, we live in a culture where it's on repeat. Like, oh, I love Jesus. No, you don't. You love whatever picture. It's the same thing in Scripture. I love Jesus, but I don't read the Word of God. That's not how this works. You love an idol of a Jesus that you built that you may worship in some ways, but you don't love the Jesus of Scripture. These things come together. They're packaged together. We talked about Good Friday. The fifth interaction of God in that passage. The, the first four we see on Palm Sunday as the week goes on. We just see this, this crescendo getting ready to happen. But it's not Him being crowned with a crown. It's Him being crowned with a thorn of crowns. They beat it on His head. And they throw Him on a tree. And they crucify Him. And what do you all see? You see that 5P come up. The punishment of God. And that punishment is for you and for me. What I deserve, Jesus took. What God promised would happen if we disobeyed, Jesus took on himself. What's the need and why is the violence? Because according to Romans, it would point out that God, if God does any other means to manipulate justice, he is not both just and loving. Christ comes in. And he maintains the idea that he is just. His, his, his justice must be solid, consistent. But he's also the justifier. He's also the loving. God has done the work. He paid the price. And so because of that, his character is intact. And he is more loving than you and I could have ever dreamed. And both those things collide on the cross of Jesus Christ. Why the need and why the violence? Because that is how... Uh, our sin is. It's a repulsion to God. It is something He has to uh, uh, leave. It's something that He has to deal with. It's something that cannot go on forever. Why? Because it curses you and it curses the people around you. It curses His creation and so He deals with it. And the cross of Christ, He deals with it once and for all. So that you and I now get to wake up and live a life for the glory and honor of God through the power and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is a fascinating Story. We went into Silent Saturday, right? That were, that's where we were. I asked you all that, that day just to calm down, to, to fast, just to dwell in the moment of what has happened between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. 
And then we talked about the resurrection, the trial of triumph. What trials did Jesus check off as he walked that road? It was submission, sacrifice, and satisfaction. I showed you them in both the New Testament and the real big one was Isaiah 53 because we saw it there too. The Lord gave us pictures of what was coming. Isaiah 53, if you were to just cut it out and put it right in the New Testament, nobody would have an issue with who that was about. It is about Jesus from start to finish. And in that, he learns submission to the Father's will. If you remember in that passage, it was the Father's good will to crush him. That is Isaiah 53. That passage should floor us every time you read that. It was the Father's good will to crush Christ. Why? So that you and I could be one back into this relationship with him. Because there was no other way to do it. And for the glory of King Jesus that would come later. He learns submission. He learns sacrifice. And he learns the idea that there is an amazing satisfaction that even comes after that. He is the name above every name. He is our perfect high priest. And for all of eternity, you or I will never be able to look at him and say to Jesus, you don't understand how hard it was to live that life. I mean, I know I did some bad things, but you don't understand what temptation was really like. You don't understand what it was like to be mistreated. Lord. And I appreciate all you've done, but my life is really hard. The perfect high priest idea is that has been nullified. Jesus is our perfect high priest. Why? Because he understands everything you go through. When you wake up on a Monday morning and you are tired, you are angry, you are hurt, you are facing a difficult position, Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, your Messiah, your advocate at the throne room of heaven understands all of those things. And that is amazing because no earthly mind could have thought that up. story is so important. He has triumphed over death, the grave, physical circumstances, doubters and deniers. He's triumphed over the law. He's triumphed over the limitations of a sympathetic God. What did I try to pitch to you uh, a couple weeks ago was empathy is a one-on-one -on -one connection because of the deep understanding that comes from sharing an emotional experience. I told you there are limitations to a sympathetic God. Jesus destroys that. Why? Because he now shares our experiences. Sympathy would look and pity us. Empathy shares the experience. And so this God of the universe wasn't content with looking and saying, isn't it sad that they can't save themselves? Isn't it so upsetting that they've ruined my creation? I need to punish this anyway, but it really is sad. That's not the case. Jesus steps in, and now that shared experience is his and ours. And so when Job cries out, there's no one to put his hand on God and to put his hand on me and bridge this gap, Jesus fulfills that prophecy. Is that amazing? Very few people have had as hard a life as Job, and his cry in that moment is, there's no bridge between me and God. If he only knew what kind of prophecy he was whispering, it would have blown his mind. He has triumphed over my failures, my world, my restrictions, my enemies, my death, and my sin. The Lamb of God crucified and the wrath of God satisfied. So what happens next? That's the part of the story that you and I pick up on today. From the idea of He is gone to the transition of we will go, there are some things that happen. And they are important and you and I need to uh, to to 
dive into them and see what's going on. What happens between these two moments in this time of Jesus is dead, the resurrected body has not been seen, touched, and felt yet. What is going on with the disciples? We see that in a couple passages. Matthew 26, verse 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. When? In the garden. When the Romans showed up. When they took him captive, what happens? All the disciples left him and fled. Jesus, you don't understand what it's like to be lonely. Really? How about 26, 75? Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And Peter remembered before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Peter, the one that looked at him before everything went down and said, listen, if all these other losers run away from me, I'll be there, Lord. I'll be the guy. What a humbling moment for Peter for the third time to deny he even knew Christ. And what was amazing is he pulls the sword out in the garden and he takes a swing at one of the servants. He's ready to do battle, but he's not going to pick the Roman soldier. I'll take the servant. Jesus, you got him. I got this. His bravado and his pride had really written a check that he couldn't cash. It bounced like crazy, like one of those little rubber balls. Like it's gone. So he pulls the sword and he takes the swing and Jesus heals the ear of the person that he lops off. Then just minutes later, he denies for the third time even knowing Jesus to his servant girl. That's what scripture says. He couldn't even acknowledge Christ to someone in that society that wasn't even on his level. A girl says, aren't you one of the Jewish men that was with him? Oh no, I swear. And he starts cursing himself. This is where Christ is, and this is where the disciples are. Luke 23, what's it say? It says this, And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Watching what things? The crucifixion. They're watching, they're weeping, and they're grieving. This person that they had put their faith in, their hope in, their trust in, for the last three years they had put, some of them had put their wealth behind what he was doing all of them had put in their hope, put in their hope in what he had was teaching and preaching. Some of them for the reason that they thought he would be crowned king. Some of them for the reason that they didn't yet understand. But they knew there was something special. And they're watching from a distance as he suffers alone. They're scared. Scared. Heartbroken. They're watching a loved one that never did anything wrong. Be brutally beaten and crucified. And they're grieving. What happens next changes everything. From the mountaintop to the valley. Matthew chapter 28. Look at it with me. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came, and he rolled back the stone, and he sat on it. I love it. Just chilling. Not even standing in the fence. Just hanging out. Verse 3, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. 
And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And they ran to tell the disciples. Let's start there and start working through this passage. What happens in verse 1? Never underestimate the value of dedication. So when we finish today, I'm kind of running two tracks here. okay? And I want to, uh, I want to be clear now so you're kind of flipping back and forth with me. The track one is the idea of apologetics. Reason we believe. Reasons we believe that this is real. That's one track I want to run you down. And we're going to go through those things quickly. But by the time we finish in May, everyone that has attended this church should be able to articulate why you believe Jesus was actually resurrected bodily from the grave. Now, if you cannot, you, you weren't listening. Write the points, I'll make them slowly, and we're going to reiterate them constantly. That's one track, the apologetic thing, which is reasons why we believe. The other one I want to share with you is a principle today that I think will draw you and I into a, 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 a posture that will allow us to know the Lord better. There is a posture that will allow us to know the Lord better. I believe you've seen in the Old Testament. I'm going to take it to you today. But I want you to understand, you do not underestimate the value of dedication. From his teaching ministry to his crucifixion, and now the empty tomb, those that stayed closest saw the most of what Jesus had to offer, and they were moved the fastest to go tell someone else about it. Who is that in this passage? The women. Mary Magdalene, who Scripture would have us believe was, was somebody living in a very sinful lifestyle. Some would even say demonically possessed. And the Lord had touched her, healed her, and drawn her close. She is the one that breaks open and worships Him frequently and loves Him well. She is one of the people that is watching all of this unfold. She gets to the tomb with the other women, and they see it empty first. Do not underestimate the value of dedication. Be determined to be faithful. Every temptation for you and I is a testing of our dedication to show who or what we actually worship. Every temptation that comes into our life is an opportunity for you and I to show who we actually worship or what we worship. Do we worship man? Do we worship the praise of man? Do we worship money? Do we worship this? These temptations that the Lord is doling out. Do we worship physical pleasure? Or do we worship the God of the universe who makes promises to us that sometimes feel they just don't jive with what we see in the world? God makes all kinds of promises that the world would say that's silly and stupid. They revolve around money. They revolve around relationships. They revolve around the intimacy that comes with marriage. They revolve around all these stuff. And the world would say, that's dumb, that's dumb, that's dumb, that's antiquated. You're silly to do that. I can't believe you give your money away. I can't believe you want to get married and stay married. I can't believe you want to do this or you want to, like, there's all these things in Scripture. 
And the world would say, that's stupid. You're done for doing it. Every temptation is an opportunity for you and I to show who or what we worship. And every sin is a moment you and I choose something other than God's glory, God's mission, or God's plan for our life. His glory, His mission, or His plan. Every sin you and I commit is an affront to one of those things, if not all of those things. The glory, the mission, and the plan of God. Verse 2, from grieving to giving. Every interaction between heaven and earth creates a great earthquake. I've told this to you for years. We have, we have pockets of people where seeing the next sign is the only thing that affirms God is real. Seeing the next miracle or what they can call a miracle is the only thing that affirms what God is real. Every time heaven touches earth, there is a massive earthquake. Every interaction between heaven and earth brings dead men to life. That's a massive earthquake. Every interaction mends broken relationships. That's a massive earthquake. These are things that physically, this, this world cannot understand how they happen. How does someone change from this person to this person in a day? Because a dead man was here and a living one is here. Heaven touching earth does that. How are you working through your relationship with somebody that is so hard to deal with or, or someone that has been unfaithful? How are you putting back together these pieces with your son or your daughter that tried to destroy your life or try to hurt you? Why are you still hanging out with somebody that was so mean to you or did this or did that? When heaven touches earth, great earthquakes happen. And you and I are so worried about curing cancer or growing a limb back that we can't understand that that person that was lost and they're now saved, they were dead and now they're alive. That's a miracle. That Christian that hasn't cared for years that woke up one morning and the Holy Spirit put his thumb on him and said, you need to get right and start living like it. That is a miracle. That relationship that was broken that is now mended or working on being mended, that is a miracle. He makes ferocious people from the weak. And he makes steady from the wavering. And God help us, he humbles the prideful. Those are great earthquakes. You and I need to be able to diagnose them and see them as God's work and as God's miracle because they are just as much a miracle as somebody having cancer today and not having cancer tomorrow. And if we're thinking long term, it is far more important to be not dead in your sin anymore than it is to wake up tomorrow cured from some disease. Because one kills you forever. One's going to take your body. We need to have eyes to see the great earthquakes that are going on. God is working. Verses five, uh, 3 to 5. What do we see? His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards tumbled down. What happens? The humble and the righteous and the committed get to stand. They may be scared, but they're standing. The proud and the worldly fall out of fear. Don't get lulled into believing that these wicked people are winning. Don't get lulled into thinking that these wicked people have it all made. Because the first interaction with the God of the universe, just like the Roman soldiers when Jesus turns around and says, I am, the same thing happens here. And this wasn't even God. This was one of his messengers. This was an errand boy 
stood on the rock and go talk to somebody, and the guards fell over as dead men. The toughest of the tough. That's the God you serve. His messengers are enough to weaken the knees and to take the breath of the greatest the world has to offer. Verses 6 to 7, what happens, and this is going to be a reoccurring theme as we walk through these appearances of Jesus. He is not here, for He is risen. Why? As He said. Miracles confirm what the Word of God says. It's always been that way. They don't create new things. They don't create new ministries or, or new ideas. Miracles confirm the promises that were given before. The Old Testament does that, and Jesus does that. When the, when the, when the angel steps in and says, why is he risen? Why? Because he's going to confirm what he told you he was going to do. And this comes up on repeat. His Word, His promises. He is doing these things so that you will believe what He told you. He's doing these things so you will believe what He told you. Can it really be that simple? You better believe it. People with ears to hear knew the Old Testament and they knew what was happening. Jesus is showing these miracles. When He turns water into wine, it's to do what was promised. Always confirming the Word of God. The humble, the righteous, and the committed stand. The tough and the worldly fall. Verses 6 to 7. There is verification. He is risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. The resurrection is the stamp of approval. I've told you, Resurrection Sunday, Easter is my favorite holiday. Why? Because it makes everything else make sense. The virgin birth doesn't make sense if Easter Sunday doesn't happen. Because the virgin birth would have been very easy to play off because nobody really wanted to die. Right? Make that story up in a heartbeat. I don't know what happened. Your kids do it all the time, right? Like who left the door open? I don't know. Who ate this for some of you with teenagers? Who ate all my, I don't know, this period? Right? It's been really easy to make that story out. Get pregnant. I don't know. Just that. Woke up. Swear. Right? Now, this is it's real easy to make that story out until this happens. Because even his family, remember, even his family thinks he's crazy until they run into a resurrected Christ. It's been really hard to be a younger brother to Jesus. Oh, he's the perfect little chair. No, he's going to get what's coming to him now. I, mean, I told him he's an idiot. And all of a sudden, oh, hey, Lord. Wow. Thanks for the forgiveness. From grave to gardener. Flip over with me to John chapter 20 real quick. I believe the stories, um, I think you have to make the stories fit by going from one book to the other. Because, and I'm going to tell you this this time. I'm going to tell you this, okay? If I ask four of you, okay, that, that have been here since 9.45 or 10 o'clock or 10.30, if I ask four of you tonight, okay, go home this week and write me a couple paragraphs about what went on today, just between the hours of 10 and 12 at this place. Don't call nobody. Just for a minute. Would you, would the four of you come back with the same story? No. It would be told from different perspectives. As we read through it, would it all match? Yeah. If you were honest. 
One of the apologetics for Scripture is the stories don't match exactly, and we're okay with that. Why? Because they were written at different times from different people that had eyewitness information. So if I give you a week to go home and write a story about what happened today, and you come back and I read four of them and they don't match exactly, nobody's throwing their hands up and saying, you made it up! No, the kids did leave the sanctuary, and we did preach a sermon, and we did have this music, or we did do this. Like, it all makes sense in the context of what's going on. So I think these two passages, we have to read back and forth to see what's going on. Uh, John chapter 20 says this, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Does that make sense? We just read that, right? A little bit different. Not contradictory. Okay? Now, if you all go home and you come back and I read your four stories and they look exactly alike, what am I going to say? You're copying each other. Copy and paste, really? That's how lazy we are? Can't trust you not to call each other and work through this assignment together? This wasn't a group effort. The gospel don't do that. Do you understand a little bit more about why they're not all exactly the same? We're not even taking into context what they were trying to achieve. The Gospel of John is out of order a lot. Why? Because God, uh, John wanted to show Jesus as God. He wasn't worried about the timeline. He was worried about checking certain boxes so that when people read it, they would say, He is Messiah. I have written these things that you may believe. So John 20. Still dark. Soul stone been taken away. Number two. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Well, the angels missed. Okay. What's there? She ran and went to tell the disciples exactly what Matthew 28 says. And the one whom Jesus loved, who is John, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. I love that idea because she still doesn't understand Jesus' bodily resurrected. So how can she not know? Because she's distraught. Her Messiah is gone and she still thinks they. I think this they though, I think this they is angels. I think she thinks the angels took his body, not the soldiers. That's just my personal opinion. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter uh, went out with the other disciple. They were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. There's your homework this week. Go home and check out what that means. Find a Jewish source and figure out what it means to have a meal together and what that picture, uh, what picture Jesus is telling them. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed, for as they did not, uh, for as yet they did not understand what the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. From grave to garden, Jesus is resurrected. From grave to garden, he was in the grave, and now what happens? Keep reading with me. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, 
Mary. Like Lazarus in the tomb. Lazarus. What happens next? She turned and said to him, Rabboni, teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. Well, run with me through this principle real quick. The risen Lord and a resurrected hope, right? The story unfolds like Matthew's, the woman discovering an empty tomb and messages are to be delivered. Same story. This one says this, though. What happens? The disciples went where? Back home. Doesn't mean they weren't grieving. Doesn't mean anything else. But it's almost like life took over and they were either scared or they had to get back to work. I don't know what the picture really is with that. But Scripture deems it important enough for you and I to pull it out and look at it. They went home. What did Mary do? God, help us understand this. Help us understand this. Who does the Lord show himself to first? Not just the one. The one believing. Paralyzed. She can't move. She's stuck there. Waiting for him to show up and waiting for that kind of hope. Do you see this picture now? And what does Jesus do? Instead of making her wait like everyone else has to wait, he shows up early and he hasn't, he hasn't even ascended into the Father's throne yet. Like, don't ask me to explain it. I can tell you this. He says, don't touch me. I haven't gone to the Father yet. So somewhere out of this time, of this three-day period of preaching the gospel in Sheol, in death, Abraham's bosom, where he brings people out of there and finally into heaven, some deep theological conversation that we can have for days or hours, he stops and looks at her and says, Mary. Listen to me, friends. The heart of God loves grieving people. He knows you and I need it. And He's not going to make you wait forever. Psalm 34 says this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and He saves the crushed in spirit. How about Psalm 51? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. How about Psalm 147? He heals the brokenhearted and He binds up their wounds. Isaiah 41, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And how about Isaiah 61? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the broken hearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Listen to me very, very carefully. Are you grieving right now? And if you're not, if your life has gone a prolonged period of time without finding something to grieve over, find it. You see, the Lord feels distance because you and I aren't sad about anything. We could care less about what's going on with our neighbors and that this person's dying and going to hell or our country and our culture are going to hell. We could care less. Why? Because our bellies are full and Netflix is still playing. The Lord feels distant. It's because you're not grieving. Because He runs to the brokenhearted. And He binds them up. And He strengthens them. And it's not the end of the story. Mary doesn't stay brokenhearted because now what happens? There is an immediate about face. 
from being the most broken-hearted person to being only one with the access to know what is really going on. God is near to the brokenhearted. You and I need to remember that. Blessed are those who mourn is what Jesus would say so they will be comforted. You want the Lord to meet you, find something proper to grieve over. He meets broken people. Is it your own sin? Is it the state of your family? Is it someone that you know? Get a tear on your cheek that's real and the Lord will find you. Like the prodigal's father who will seek you out and run to you and bind you up. Find something proper to grieve over and the Lord will show up. If it feels dry right now, it's because you've not grieved in a while. I promise you that. He will not let you grieve alone. How about Matthew chapter 28? Go back there. We're almost done. From full to vacant. Matthew 4, verse 9 and 10. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go out and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. So what happens here? So the story is skipped. That's why I took you to John 20. The story is skipped with Mary in the garden by herself. Why? Jesus says, Don't touch me. Then, somewhere later, Matthew picks up the story and all the women get to see Jesus. And what do they do? They bow down and touch his feet. So somewhere between Jesus appearing to Mary, saying, don't touch me, he's in heaven, and he's back to earth. And the other women that came to grieve are now the next ones up to get to see the resurrected Jesus. Verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests what had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders... Uh, and taking counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said to them, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away uh, while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears and you're going to get in trouble, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. What happens in 11 to 15? We see a story big enough uh, to fill an empty tomb. They've got to figure out something why, because the tomb is empty. The guards are protecting themselves. The elders are protecting their power. The guards are lining their pockets. And all at the expense of actual truth. Notice the glaring problem, though. The tomb is still empty. You want to know how you stop Christianity? You bring the dead body out and you throw it out in the middle of a Jewish street and say, there is your Messiah. There's a huge problem. They couldn't do that. Because no matter what story they made up, it had to account for the fact that the tomb was still empty. From full to vacant. I'll finish up as they come this morning with two points and a principle. Two apologetic points and one strong principle for your life to to be built off. There are two foundational elements to biblical Christianity as a securing and proper worldview. If you miss one of these, Christianity no longer works. It just will not be feasible. I want you to understand what I'm saying. If you destroy the Word of God or you take away the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have now officially nullified the Christian faith. You only have to take away one. And for 2,000 years, they haven't been able to take away either. There are two foundational elements to biblical Christianity as a securing and proper worldview. The reliability of Scripture and the credibility with which it's been translated. Is it real and is it pure? If you answer yes to both those questions and you don't believe in God, you've got big trouble. Now what's the second piece? The second piece is a resurrected Jesus Christ. If that body comes out of that grave and there's no body to show and that tomb is empty, 
The people that don't believe have big trouble. They have to make what they believe actually work. Two apologetics. A resurrected Christ, right, to believe there's an empty tomb and there's eyewitness testimony. One is the empty tomb. Number two is there are eyewitness testimonies. We're going to go through those for weeks and I'm going to show you what happens to these people as they meet him. But 2A would be this. The women are the first to see Jesus. They could not even come to court and testify. So the idea that the Jewish people or the disciples would make up this story and then use women as the first eyewitnesses would be totally countercultural. It would make no sense because it wouldn't work anywhere in authority. It wouldn't work anywhere legally. It had to be Peter first or John first. Two apologetic points. There is an empty tomb and there are eyewitnesses that have seen the resurrected Jesus. And the principle I want to leave you with is simply this. The greatest way for you and I to know God is to stay faithful and grieve the right things. A faithful, attended, hearted believer will know God. Life gets hard. Stuff gets rough. Don't harden your heart. Don't make decisions that make it easier to ignore the Holy Spirit speaking or to ignore the needs and love and the care of other people. Don't make it easier to do those things. Don't harden your heart. Why? You and I have got to be sensitive because God doesn't scream and shout. He speaks in a still small voice. Your moment of salvation was a moment of intense grief. You met God there. God met you there. Because you realize, man, my sin is going to take me to hell. There's a glorious, righteous God, and I cannot achieve that. So in the moment of salvation, you are grieving something that you cannot fix. The rest of your Christian life will mimic that. There are moments of intense grief, intense mourning. We mourn over the state of our families, over the state of our friends, those that don't know the Lord. Listen, if it's been a while since you shed a tear, I would strongly recommend you get quiet long enough with God to grieve something. Because the Lord will meet you there. He will strengthen you. He will put you on the correct path. And He will send you forward to tell His message and to love and care for the people. We stand with you this morning as they play. If you need something, you come. I will